Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with Delia Delore, the show that explores the impacts of commonly used phrases on our world's diverse cultures and how people's use of them shape our perspective on the societies that we live in. I'm Delia Delore and like you, I've been watching COVID-19 developments And so I'm asking you all to keep safe, not only for yourself, but for others. I've seen people not wearing masks properly. They have them beneath their noses. They put them under their chins. They don't social distance. And it really amazes me how we're not thinking of other people when we do these things, if we don't want to think about ourselves. So I'm asking you all to please take some care and consideration for those around you. My guest today, Kate Warren, captivated me when she dug deeply into the treatment of African-American soldiers in the village of Cornwall. Yes, Cornwall, and you will be surprised at the outcome. Kate's account and our behavior towards COVID-19 makes me think of the metaphor, a little goes a long way, or better still, the adaptation, a little consideration goes a long way which is very different from today's metaphor, or is it? Today I'll be speaking with Kate Warren on how today's phrase, the straw that broke the camel's back, led a brigade of African-American soldiers to revolt and what pushed them to their breaking point. We will be focusing on how these soldiers faced racism and how in today's world, the straw that broke the camel's back is put to effect in the modern day world. But first, where does this phrase come from? Today's metaphor is the last straw that broke the camel's back, often shortened to the last straw. This idiom is thought to have originated from an Arabic proverb. The proverb describes a camel being so overburdened that a single straw caused the poor creature to crumble. Camels themselves are incredibly hardy mammals. They are perfectly adapted to desert life, able to survive up to seven months without water provided they eat. So what is the camel's secret to being able to survive so long without water? The answer is simple. Camels are extremely well adapted to survive dehydration, being able to drink up to 20 gallons of water at once. A camel's blood has evolved to take on this immense volume and its fur also prevents the mammal from sweating too much, thus making its water retention abilities second to none. Along with being able to carry up to 270 kilograms, the ability to provide food, milk, wool, transportation, and its uses in entertainment has solidified the importance of the camel in Arabic culture. A centuries-old sport, camel racing has since become a multi-million dollar event. This activity, like many animal sports, has faced a troubling dark side. One of the most important factors to a speedy camel is the light weight it carries on its back, leading to the inappropriate use of child jockeys, which was a rife up until very recently. The children who worked these competitions were known to be trafficked into the industry from other nations, seeing extreme abuse, lacking education, and facing abandonment once they grew too heavy to race. Thankfully, this illegal practice is dying out, Instead, the use of robots weighing no more than a laptop and being relatively inexpensive to build is becoming much more common amongst this sport. 
The machines riding the camels are fitted with a whip that the trainer can activate via a remote control as they drive alongside the racers. Using walkie-talkies, the trainers are also able to bark directions at their camels as a speaker is fitted onto the robot. It has only been since the 1970s in which there has been real interest in the sports. Soon after the United Arab Emirates were formed, the camel racing gained great interest and became an important cultural icon for Emiratis, uniting them all together. Organizations began popping up to formulate and govern the events along with groups who trained and bred the mammals. In fact, the average speed of a racehorse in Europe hasn't changed much in half a century. The average speed of a racing camel has increased by 30% during the same period. Moving away from camels and thinking back to today's phrase, the straw that broke the camel's back, we should note how the last straw describes not only the final moments before disaster, but the probably tiny size of the trigger. A piece of straw in itself is not particularly heavy, but together a stack of them can be. This brings us to the concept of cause and effect. The feather that broke the horse's back is an alternative version of today's metaphor that you have probably also heard of. The earliest recorded use of this phrase was in the theological debate between Thomas Hobbes and John Bramhall back in 1655. They were discussing causality, which in simple terms is thinking that everything has a cause. This basic idea has created some huge questions like how the universe was created. Sometimes it's hard to identify the actual cause to the effect. Did that final straw really break the camel's back? Is it indeed true that at which the moment the camel collapses, that last straw certainly seems to have done it? But the real cause was in fact the overburdening of the poor creature. Or as Moss Death asks, why did one straw break the camel's back? Here's the secret. The million straws underneath it. It's all mathematics. Let's refocus on the essence of this metaphor and address how one single event can alter and create spark that could change the future. Kate Warren, a former producer of my show The Delore Factor and now author of The American Uprising in Second World War, England, Mutiny in the Duchy, spoke of her experiences of this metaphor and one spark that led to a drastic event. Kate, we have a history that many people would not understand, not believe. And when I saw your book, I was just, oh, I know we'd spoken about it, you'd mentioned, and when I actually saw it, I just thought, oh my, and it just looks so wonderful. The cover is intriguing. Oh my gosh. So before we go into a list of questions I have, I, I want to know what made you feel that you needed to write a book like this? This story has got a history. It is part of my family history. So my dad is a very proud Cornish man and he's also a war baby. And we used to go to Launceston, my dad's hometown, every year to see family. And I've got three siblings and he always used to show us the war memorial and the town square. It's an ancient town, Norman town, but there are bullet holes that you can see, you can touch, you can feel bullet holes. 
and he told us about a shootout between American soldiers in the Second World War. And no one really knew anything about it, but they knew that it happened and it was the talk of the town. Still in 1947, four years after it happened, when my dad's family moved from London to Launceston, people were talking about it and they were intrigued by it. And it sparked an interest in me. And my husband and I took time to travel around America before we had children. And we went to the South and we'd never been to America. We didn't really know much about the Civil War. We didn't know much about civil rights. Um, but that the two things kind of collided. And I came back to the UK. I was making documentaries. And I thought, I want to find out what really happened in my dad's hometown. Because I had a feeling it might be bigger than I imagined and that was the case, actually, when I, when I started researching it. So it's a family story for me. It's part of a, the lexicon of, of stories that my dad has brought us up with. And what's been really nice is that I've been able to answer what happened for my dad, if no one else. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's a huge book, tons of research. So tell us, I know it's a, it's a big question, but give us a synopsis of, of the book. What will people, when they pick it up to read, what are they gonna find? They're gonna find a story from the Second World War that might surprise them. It will surprise them because it talks about an American army that was segregated. That was a surprise for me. I didn't realize that it was segregated along color lines. I didn't get that. So they'll be surprised about the American army. It might surprise them about the allied relationship, the Anglo-American relations. I was brought up with the idea that everything was very hunky-dory, very smooth, very united front. And actually, for many, when the American army came to the UK to trial and train for D-Day, there was a lot of tension between the two countries. And that might be surprising. But for me, the biggest surprise in this story is about the British support for African-American soldiers who came over here, there was a general feeling, they, they didn't understand, they were befuddled. Why were they not treated the same? Why did they see white soldiers kicking these guys about, abusing them racially, verbally, physically? And it didn't sit right, it didn't fit right with how the British were expecting the Allies to behave. And that for me was surprising because I'm someone who knows about how people were treated when the Windrush arrived. That's what I was expecting from the British. So to find this, this sympathy and support for the African-American GIs was surprising and that might surprise readers of the book. Kate, what surprised me when reading your book was that being brought up in the UK, born, lived there most of my life, educated there, I've lived in America. I was never taught about the black British history. Yes, they might have touched a little on Mary Seacole and Martin Luther King, but again, that's American Martin Luther King Jr. But when I read your book, I was thinking, these black soldiers? Yes, okay, of course, Windrush, we all know, but way before that, black soldiers? And also what amazed me was the things that that happened to them. What happened to them and, and when I, th when I think of our metaphor, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, I felt that your book was so fitting because in all the sadness, there were some great points. How would you think that this metaphor, the straw that broke camel's back, how do you think that may relate to some of the things that you uncovered in your book? I think the metaphor, the straw that broke the camel's back is about the mutiny. 
So these men were enlisted, they joined an army and they found out very quickly when they joined the American army that they would be doing the supply jobs, the decidedly more unglamorous side of war. It would be jobs in transport, engineering, quartermaster. So that's the first, the first sort of hurdle they had to cross. The second thing they found out that any relevant experience, qualification, that would all go by the by. They would be given a job not suited to what they were going to do. Then they'd go to training camps. And in these training camps, they were abused verbally, physically. I mean, just from my book, if I can give you some official advice to an African-American soldier who was writing home to his family um, and he was treated very badly. The official advice given to him was to not look at the white soldiers, pay them no attention, just completely ignore them. And if necessary, walk a little faster. The second bit of advice was, if the white soldier continues to hit you, get out of his way, don't hit back. So this was official treatment of black soldiers in the American army. And then when they got to the training camps, out of the training camps, and when my soldiers came over to the UK, um, by this time they had been in three camps and in each of the camps, after their very physical long days at work, they were denied R&R. They weren't allowed out of camp. They had to stay in the camp. Um, and the thing for me, I've, I've researched this, this group, this unit quite carefully. The very first thing they were told when they arrived in Cornwall after their lengthy hazardous journey across the Atlantic, they were told that they weren't allowed out into town because they didn't have the required dress shirts. It didn't stop any white soldier from going into town, but they were restricted to town. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. They had had enough, especially given that when they went out into the town, which they did, they were welcomed with open arms by the British, by the Cornish people who were there. They were, if they were denied drinks because the white GIs went like this, a British soldier or British civilian would stand up and buy them a drink. That was the, recep the reception they got. And that, that A is surprising, but B, that was really the straw that broke the camel's back this feeling that they wouldn't take any more. And also uh, I read about the pub owner who was told, could tell, tell our listeners about the story that the pub owner and his sign. So there was many, many, um, there've been some lovely examples of how the British reacted. Um, but one, there was an apocryphal sign outside a pub saying this pub is reserved for Englishmen and I think, was it coloured soldiers? I don't know. Is that okay to say uh, that? That's, yeah, that's what, that's what they called us. The nice to I know. So yeah. I find it. <laughs> this yeah. pub is reserved for English men and for coloured soldiers. White GIs weren't welcome. I've had a lovely gentleman contact me from Plymouth. Now, his mum was a bus conductress and 21 at the time, and she had a set to with a white GI officer who was trying to evict black GIs from her bus. And she was like, no, 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 you don't do that here. We don't do that here. You get off or oh. you put up basically. Yes. So yes. lots of stories of British support. And you can hear that British voice throughout. That's not fair. That's, that's not democracy. You can hear the British people just reacting to this egregious, unfair racism, which actually they hadn't seen before. Although Britain was at the heart of this empire, there was a very small black British population in Britain at the time. And this was their first real exposure to how they were treated by the Americans. And it came as a shock and not a very nice 
shock either you know it was it was, yeah. it was it was shunned basically yes I think I've just remembered the words in your book I think the words were African-American GIs only does that does that it sounds about all colored soldiers only oh, yeah. and and that's that something like that yeah and there's another quote saying well, we don't mind these yanks that come over it's the white ones we don't like yeah. <laughs> but uh, tell our listeners about the actual uprising the incident that actually uh, caused uh, one of the main uprisings and, and what eventually happened. So what happened? The soldiers arrived in Cornwall. They were told they couldn't go into town, but they went into town anyway. Um, and the first night they went down, there was a dance going on in the town hall and they bought tickets and they were very roughly manhandled out by the MPs, the white military policemen who said, no, we'll get you a refund, you can't go. And it was very roughly done. Again, British soldiers were surrounding them saying, that's not fair, that, you know, they deserve to go there, they bought their ticket. And they were told to step away by the American MPs. On the Sunday night, they went back into town and they did a pub tour, you know, pub tour, they went to a few pubs, they had some gin, they had some beer. Um, in various places and there was um, an incident there was a fight between some soldiers in a pub according to the court document they were white soldiers only I don't understand how that would have triggered it but after this fight one of the guys came outside and said I'm, I'm not having any more will you stick together and the guy said yeah we'll stick together and so they walked back up the mile the mile back up to their camp and they armed themselves with bayonets, with Tommy guns, they got some ammunition, and then they marched back into town, three abreast, in this military formation. Um, and the sound that their, their boots made on the streets is something that witnesses remember to this day. They say it was as if an entire company of men was moving through the night. And then they stopped when they got to the war memorial. And what stopped them? Apparently they were going back to this pub, but what stopped them was the sight of these white American military policemen. And they were gathered around the square. There were a couple of Jeeps. There were some women. There were some other soldiers of different nationalities. And they surrounded them. And the call was, why can't we come into the pubs? Why can't we come into town? Then some words were said, it's not clear what was said, but suddenly fire was opened and there were two guys, two white MPs who were injured. Walter White, who was in charge of the NAACP at the time, came to investigate this. And as he, he was a lawyer, but he, he said, you know, if they're aiming for murder, because this is what they were tried with, they wouldn't have aimed below the knees. And that's where these guys were hit. So this was the mutiny. People dispersed quickly. There were a lot of soldiers rounded up the next day. And then the next major thing is the court-martial. And the court-martial happened a few miles away in a Devon town called Paynton. And as you go through the transcript, which reads like a drama, by the way, the court transcript of what happens is unputdownable. It quickly becomes clear that this wasn't a fair, open court. It was a kangaroo trial and twice the judge tried to censor what was happening. The very first thing he said is, um, we're going to censor the reporting of race. And it would have been censored had it not been for a plucky Daily Mirror journalist who piped up, well, this has actually been out in the public domain anyway, so there's no point doing that. So it had to be, the race had to be reported. 
And then at the end of this trial, and there was shoddy evidence, not one of the MPs or not one of the witnesses could identify any of the men in the stand. Many, in fact, were misidentified. Evidence was, it was obvious that the investigators had produced confessions under duress. They had come to them with names. They'd come to them with allegations of what had happened and made them sign. One illiterate man hadn't even seen what he was meant to have told the investigator. So it was a horrible, you know, it's very sad to read this trial. And at the end, the judge said, after a day of deliberating on the third day, he said, well, we've come to our verdict, but we're not going to allow that to come out into the public domain. So nobody knew what happened to these guys, least of all the men themselves. They left that courtroom not knowing whether they were guilty or innocent. And they went on their way, but they were actually sentenced to long stretches of hard labor between 15 and 20 years. That is, that is so sad, you know, but, and I hate to say, but we still see evidence of those types of treatments still going on in, in our millennium. So do you believe that this improper treatment of, of people from African-American heritage really hasn't changed throughout the years? And by judging by the Black Lives uh, matter movements and the murder of George, George Floyd in the US, it could be argued that racism is more prominent now than it was 80 plus years ago. How do you think this could be changed, if at all? I think it needs to be reported. I think for me, I, I love history. I've always loved history. And you were saying before, I wasn't taught any black history at school. I wasn't taught anything about the empire, actually. It was kind of airbrushed. So I did the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. I did how it affected, you know, people's lives in Britain, but nothing else. I think we need to look at the curriculum. I think it needs to be widened and open to be honest. I think if we look at history, we can only be honest with ourselves today. I really believe that. And I think Mark Twain is meant to have said, history never repeats itself but it rhymes. This story from nearly 80 years ago rhymes very sadly today and it rhymes in a way that is just very, very sad. You know, all this time again, this was a segregated army, it was a different world. We're meant to be so much more open and modern and forward thinking, but look how people are still treated. It's just yeah. it's sad, it's tragic and it's not right. And, and, it, and I think education, and I think reporting of this, don't forget, this was, this story has been uncovered. I've pieced it back together again. They didn't want us to know what really happened. And we do, and we can do that with social media. Um, people can talk more. So I feel this is something that can be addressed and it should be addressed. It should be a number one priority, frankly. Are you going to try to get your book into schools? Do you know what, interestingly, um, it's it'd been a nightmare time to publish. It has to be honest. It's been a dreadful time um, to come out because all the bookshops were shut. Um, but there, it's in five school. Uh, it's in five libraries in Cornwall. And someone else said to me, actually, have you thought about schools? My goddaughter um, is at school in Wimbledon, and I gave a talk to her sixth form colleagues, and they're studying, interesting, the Second World War and civil rights, and they felt it was quite a nice bridge between the two. Because I think for many African-Americans, the Second World War was kind of a wake-up call. Their experience in Europe, realising that they could be treated on a more equal footing, was the wake-up call. And many were very, very brave and persevered in registering to vote, 
when they got back home so that their voices could be heard. I feel, you know, so in answer to your question, yes, I think there is definitely a role in schools um, for my book and for, for this part of history. Mm-hmm. But have you, as a, a Caucasian woman, have you received any negative comments or how did you feel as a Caucasian woman writing something that yes, it was kind of mainstream, you know, people living in Cornwall, but it seems as if the people living there were for the African-American GIs. They were for them. It was, it was a, a feel good kind of story amidst all the bad things that were happening to them. How did it feel for you writing about a culture that, as you said before, you wasn't really aware of that at, of them at all? It was, it just came as a massive, massive shock, actually. It made me very proud, actually, to be Cornish. If I'm being really honest, my dad's Cornish, my family, you know, I just, to to have this reaction about something that's so evidently wrong, to just to be thinking and doing the right thing, actually, was, it felt good. You say what reaction I've had. I've had some pretty horrible reactions, actually, but I think they're from white people who don't like the story that I've written. Um, I've had some lovely reactions from grandchildren of GIs who were fathered over here at that time who had no idea the kind of things that their grandfathers went through the bravery they showed uh, two of them they were trying very hard to marry their sweethearts they weren't allowed I mean don't forget mixed marriages as they were called were banned they were illegal in 30 or 48 American states in 1943 so they went through a hell of a lot they showed this real bravery um, to try and you know, pursue their dreams and marry their sweethearts, but they weren't allowed to. It was illegal when they went back home. So that, you know, it was, it was surprising for me. And I have been surprised pleasantly in stories like that. And then slightly unpleasantly by some of the things that, you know, angry faces about a picture of my, my front cover, you know. I think it was a wonderful front cover. How did you think about that? What, what determined that that was the one? Do you know what? There's the most wonderful archive out there. It's called Crescent Kerno. It's the county records office and it's spangly new building in Red Ruth. And there, by, by pure chance, there was a fantastic photographer called George Ellis, a tabloid national photographer who happened to move down to Cornwall in the Second World War. And he took pictures of what he saw. So I went to the county record, I went to Crescent Kerno, spoke to an amazing archivist called Kim Cooper. And I'd seen, I'd, I kind of knew that there were pictures out there and she tracked them down. They're in their collections. They were moving at the time. It was a complete nightmare for her, but she went beyond the call of duty to find these amazing images. And wow, am I pleased that she did? Because for me, he could see that picture shows he was pointing out segregation. You can see that picture, that line. It was a physical line between black and white soldiers. And he was making a point. So I'm really glad I can make that point for him because I'm not sure how many people would have seen it back then. Yeah, it's very catching and the title as well. I mean, how did you come across the title? Let's have the full title and tell us how you came across, you You know, why did you name it that? Well, I is an American uprising in Second World War England, mutiny in the duchy. So mutiny in the duchy, it's the duchy of Cornwall. Launceston Castle was part of the duchy of Cornwall. Um, and it was this American uprising and it was... You know, something that the, it wasn't the only uprising. There were other examples of this all over the UK in the Second World War. And everyone wanted to cover it up. They wanted to hide it because it showed that there was this fault line, this, this tension in Anglo-American relations. And it was caused by this opposing views on how people of colour should be treated. 
Well, uh, I, I think it's just absolutely amazing that, you know, you, you spent all this time. Have you approached the British Library or the Black Cultural Archives? Uh, what have been the responses there? Um, the Brit- they were research tools for me. So the British Library, Imperial War Museum, National Archives, the various regions, they were, they, that's where my documents are from. In terms of getting in touch with people, again, it's been really difficult because things have been shut. So a lot of these, the National Archives have only just opened. I haven't been in touch with them in short, but I would like to. Um, and I think maybe now it might be easier. But when it came out, nothing, literally nothing was open. You haven't had any contact with any black cultural groups or anything to kind of let them know that this has happened? Because I, I don't think many people know about it. Nobody knows about it. Um, no, I spoke to The Voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this was in lockdown. You had one person yes. on the phone. It's just tricky. I will do. Part, but in answer, I will do. It's just taken time to do. In America, it's interesting. There is very little interest in America for this book. There's very little appetite for it. Yes. And I think it's because it jars with the accepted narrative of the Second World War. Because the tricky thing was, these guys, these white MPs, They had Omaha Beach on D-Day. They were heroes. But for me, part of that story, the shade in between the gray areas, the fact that, you know, they weren't, they were racist and their actions towards their fellow Americans sparked a mutiny. So I don't think there's an appetite to tell this story in America. They're certainly not responding to it. It's literally like gone into a void. And that's the only thing I can think. I have read another amazing history of a barrage balloon uh, unit and the journalists tracked down these african-american guys incredibly brave who were so busy and effective on d-day and they cried you know they were so moved when she contacted them because these guys have been written out of history saving private ryan it's like the ultimate film about d-day there's not one face of color in that film they've just been written out of history. And I really hope that my book will go some way to writing them back in so we can start thinking about everything that people have done. It's just, it's not one-sided story, is it? Well, you're definitely on the right platform. You know, here on Colourful Radio, we have our community here. Um, We, of course, on people kind of uh, contact us or follow us on our social media. Uh, Links will be there. Your book information will be there. So I think it's going to amaze a lot of people And also, um, as I said to you earlier, it's on the top of my Christmas present list. So if you're on my Christmas present list, you're going to get this book because it it took me ages just to read through some of the reviews. And it was just because I had to, I read a few lines and just kind of stopped and thought, no, it was unbelievable. And I could feel, and remember, we're talking about, you know, 80 years ago, I just... I just, um, and, and as I said, you know, living in the US and the UK and the Caribbean and the, the histories that I have learned along the way. Uh, anyway, it's unbelievable. But <laughs> before uh, we go, is there anything else that you, you feel that listeners should know about the book that will encourage them to know more about their history? I think it just will challenge, it will challenge people's conceptions, people's ideas about what what the Second World War was about, what was going on, and racial politics, actually, nearly 80 years ago. I think they'll be surprised that so little has changed. I think they'll be surprised, in other ways, how things have moved on. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's 
a lot has a lot has changed. I mean, a lot of the sad. I mean, the sad thing is that it resonates so strongly. It chimes so strongly with things that are going on today. But the good thing is, this was a case that people wanted to cover up. I don't think it's so easy to cover up now. And I think more people are adding their voice to the sort of rejection of this, this, and the fact that we need a nicer, you know, we just need to be more honest, more open and more equal. And how can we get hold of your book? So it is available on Amazon. It is available in some bookshops. Um, it's available directly from Pen and Sword, who are the publishers, and they do free postage as well. So it is out there. Oh, well, Kate, it's been wonderful to touch base with you again. And I'm hoping that the next time that I interview you, it will be about your film, because this book is a film. And any film producer out there or production company, you really need, you really, really need to have a look at it. And, you know, as I'm t talking, I'm thinking maybe Idris Elba might be interested because, you know, he's got a production company in the UK and he's in the US. And I think he might, I actually think I'm going to, I'm going to get in touch and make sure that he is aware of it. And of course, uh, you know, to anything to do that I can help you to push the book, I'm going to ensure I send the link to this, uh, this interview and some of your reviews to the people I know, because I have asked so many people, you know, my, my father, the elderly people who lived in England most of their life, and they didn't know anything about this not a thing and they were so surprised to hear that Cornish people were like you know the, the, you know the the, the African-American people are very pleasant which is part of our, our you know culture no matter where you you live in the world you find that African-American people or black black British wherever you want however you want to call it they tend to be very you know approachable and you know once you approach them properly and things like yeah. that that so was really nice to know but anyway this is a very long goodbye it's just because i'm so oh, excited i'm just that you now have the book and the book looks so engaging it looks so engaging you have to pick it up i think all your choices putting it together it was just amazing The popular 90s game Buckaroo shares a lot of similarities with this week's metaphor. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Buckaroo is a game where players take turns balancing objects on a plastic mule named Roo, who, when a particular pressure sensor is activated, will buck. The player who causes Roo to unceremoniously fling the items from his back is the loser. But what does Buckaroo have to do with the ancient Arabic idiom? Well, as discussed earlier in the show, the metaphor reflects how a buildup of pressure can cause a social, physical or psychological structure to collapse. But in Buckaroo, it tends to be the case the last player is held accountable for the collapse of the delicate system. Even though when you think about Buckaroo in more depth, yes I know, you realise that the mule was always going to buck given the circumstance. It was just a question of when. That's currently on iPlayer called The State of the Union, written by Nick Hornby, craftily captures this different interpretation of the metaphor through the story of a young couple who meet for a drink every week before marriage counselling. In these episodic meetups, the couple discuss their week, their relationship, and what they want to talk about with the counsellor. 
very quickly, it transpires that they're in therapy because of an affair and that they both have quite different ideas about how they ended up there. We're going to play an audio clip now from the first few minutes of episode one. I'm nervous. I'm sorry. If it wasn't for me, we wouldn't be here. No. Just no? Yes, just no. If it weren't for you, we wouldn't be here. A sad fact. You wouldn't take a tiny bit of the responsibility? No. Why? Because... Because it's a long and complicated road that's led us here, don't you think? I mean, that depends how you look at it. There's the long and the complicated, and then there's... As the crow flies. Talk me through the route your crow flies. You slept with someone else, and now here we are. Except there's a bit more to it than that, isn't there? Which way do you go, then? Crow or no crow? Crow. You stopped sleeping with me. I started sleeping with someone else. <laughs> That's such a short version and quite crude, if you don't mind me saying. See, my version's actually longer than yours. My version explains why we're actually here. Yours is just a short partial version of the long mess that came before. Yes, I made a mistake. Can I we just clear something up? How many mistakes was it in total? One. One? Yes. Depending on how you define it. Oh, okay. Well, let's define it in a way that gives it the highest number, just so I know what we're dealing with. Well, the highest number would be in the hundreds. Jesus Christ. Because of all the tiny, tiny decisions that led to the big mistake. Oh. No, 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 I'm, I'm not really interested in the tiny decisions. We need to leave in five minutes. Figuratively speaking, the wife has triggered the sensor that has sent the buckaroo pieces flying across the board. And as far as the husband is concerned, she is wholly responsible. But the wife is convinced that whilst the final straw may have been placed by her, they have both contributed to the collapse of their union. Just like in buckaroo, the weight of every player's actions collate. Yet in most cases, it is a much easier response to blame the person who placed the last straw. The aphorism, an insightful observation which contains a general truth about society, in an avalanche, no snowflake feels responsible. Famously quoted by the Polish post-war poet Stanislaw Jerzy Lech, more Unkept Thoughts, 1968, captures this divisive approach to responsibility. Stanislaw, who spent World War II living in Warsaw and then a German work camp, saw firsthand how things can snowball out of control when individuals don't feel their actions contribute to the bigger picture. His German contemporary Martin Neumüller, a theologian and Lutheran pastor, also captured the heart of this sentiment in his famous poem, First They Came, published sometime after 1946, where he underlines the complicity of silence. In Germany, they came first for the communists. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics. And I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me. And by that time, nobody was left to speak up. 
We're taking a step back in time now, traveling to 1,955 years ago, when ancient Rome's Stoic philosopher Seneca the Younger famously summarized death as, it's not the last drop that empties the water clock, but all that which previously has flowed out. Although a metaphor for death, he talks about how, when looking at an outcome, the bigger picture should be considered. This is similar to the concept of the straw that broke the camel's back, as it takes into consideration that it takes a build-up of events and actions to bring something to its breaking point. For a little context, a water clock is an ancient timekeeping device that can be traced back as far as the 16th century BC. In its most basic sense, a water clock was a bowl or vessel that signaled the time when water trickling reached certain marks. In ancient Greece, Plato invented an alarm clock where a container of rising water would tip lead balls onto a copper plate in the morning. It's interesting that Seneca used the water clock to talk about how an inevitable outcome is easy to blame on the last drop. Seneca's metaphor was originally in Latin, which is responsible for the origin of the five Romance languages, Italian, French, Spanish, Portuguese, and Romanian. Interestingly, these languages' version of the straw that broke the camel's back all continue the sentiment of collective responsibility. In Italian, the metaphor translates to the drop that made the vase overflow. In French, it translates to the drop of water that makes the vase overflow. In Spanish, the drop that filled the glass. In Portuguese, the drop that spills over the glass. And in Romanian, the drop that makes the glass overflow. It is interesting at this point to consider whether the difference between the countries who say the straw that broke the camel's back and those with variations of the drop that made the glass overflow are set apart by their collective experiences, such as war, where those who feel a sense of post-war guilt have experienced how the actions of individuals are part of a larger, more intrinsic picture. In more contemporary news, the death of George Floyd, which sparked the biggest civil protests of our time, has been described by many news outlets as the most recent and relevant straw that broke the camel's back. Here's a clip from a Channel 4 interview with Jonathan Capehart, a columnist for the Washington Post, talking about the recent events that shook America and the world to its core. Remember, people were staying, they were socially distancing, they were staying at home. But the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was a bridge too far. We all watched it. George Floyd's death was the result of many proverbial straws being placed on a structure that couldn't bear the weight. It wasn't just the fault of Derek Chauvin. It was Chauvin's accompanying police officers and those who dismissed the 15 complaints made against him before the burning match was finally thrown upon the pile of straw. It's clear to see that it takes only one movement, one word or one sentence to cause a catalytic effect on the world that it is today, be it from the recent US election to the movement of Black Lives Matter. This metaphor can not only change lives for the bad, but also for the good. And I believe that everyone can benefit from the understanding of this metaphor. These are people can learn and change from the understanding of the impacts we have on other people's lives. As Badimi Mark Mordi once said, 
The human spirit is like an elastic band. The more you stretch, the greater your capacity. Thanks for listening to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore. And thank you to my guest, Kate Wearham. It was so great to talk to you again. If you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at msdelia at deliadelore.com. And if you want to help the show, then you can share it with your friends or leave a review. Being a new show, your help sharing it does matter. Next week's metaphor is children should be seen and not heard. I'm sure you've heard that many times before. So let us know your interpretations on our Facebook and Instagram, Metaphorically Speaking Delia. Until next week, don't forget what I said earlier. Please keep safe because when you keep safe, we're all keeping safe. Bye for now.